0: I just want you to know that in all humility, it it really is. I am your best boss ever. And let me let me just share a couple reasons why. Here at Bergen Park Church, one of the things that's very important to us is not just a person's productivity, but what we build in to him or to her. In other words, we have a goal of how they are going to progress, what they want to accomplish, and probably something that isn't handled at your work. How do we build you in a closer relationship with God? Anybody, is that one of the goals that you're, probably not, is it? Okay. Well, it is here. And so, uh, I, I just want to say that probably we do a little, th- things a little bit differently. But as I have worked with the people here on staff and polled them, and by the way, I got a proxy from Terry Tucker, and she sent back the email saying, Jim, you're the best boss ever! And uh, uh, not only do we try to build into you, uh, but I also want to say that as Barb and I would reflect on our 19 years here, uh, you're the best boss ever. It has been and will continue to be a joy to be the pastor of Bergen Park Church. I, I, maybe you've seen this um, uh, this uh, reality TV show called Undercover Boss. And, and in it, uh, a CEO disguises himself or herself uh, and goes to one of the outlets and pretends to be a trainee. And uh, so in disguise, this CEO asks a lot of questions directed at the trainer you know trying to feel this person out about you know what it's like to work in this company but also in the midst of that get some of the more personal information about the trainer and uh, <clears throat> and and also how does this trainer like the job that he or she has at the end of the series at the end of each uh, episode that boss or ceo has a meeting with the trainer and reveals who he or she really is and offers some reward for the good work that that trainer did, but also according to the personal needs. Because you see, uh, sometimes there's a disabled child or a sick parent or a desire to, to finish school or to start a new life. And the reward is often financial uh, so that these dreams can be achieved. And what it is saying is that sometimes, even in corporate world, people are more important than profits. And there is such a thing as compassionate capitalism. And yet, let's be honest. Many of you would say, I haven't seen that where I work. Labor relations are very rarely like that in terms of where I work. And so the reality show is not necessarily daily reality for your life. So how do Jesus' followers handle their labor relations? Described in a letter that is 2,000 years old, or almost, we have a 2,000-year-old answer that can transform not just your work, but your home, for you students, your school, uh, how you deal with those in your community. And, and also, it works at what it means to be a Christ follower as you take Christ into your daily work. And so, as a church and at our work, and in our homes, with our families, with our marriages, we that all of these relationships hinge on just one verse. Not many words, just one verse. And it says in Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our labor relations as Christ followers, they have no unions, there's no bargaining uh, (coughs) or collective bargaining, there's no contracts, there's no employee associations. In fact, you might say we have one rule of authority, and that is do not use your authority. Our rule is, yes, you may be granted that authority, but if at all possible, do it in terms of relationships and Submit yourself to one another. Well, let's look at uh, maybe just a, a how the labor relationships were a little different 2,000 years ago than, than we experience today. In the times of this letter, about 30 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, most businesses were family artisan run. In other words, they were artisans, they were skilled laborers in a certain trade. Uh, Ephesus had... Idol-making is one of their great trades. Paul had a trade of uh, using canvas for sales and tents, and he probably learned that from his father and the rest of his family. And he could use it to support himself when there wasn't enough money uh, in the ministry. Now, also at that time, the Roman Empire was about 30 to 40% slave-based. In other words, they had a free labor population, and uh, the, this labor they had to be cared for; they had to be, you know, uh, uh, fed and clothed, but not much more than that. Uh, even more intense was that in Rome itself, the population of Rome when this letter was written was about one third citizens of Rome and almost two thirds slaves. And there were three main ways to be a slave. Uh, one was to pay a debt. So there was no bankruptcy, there was no debtor prison. The person you owed a debt to, you said, I will work for you for nothing to pay off my debt. The second way was to be born a slave. In other words, you were born as slaves or often there would be people scrounging near the dumps and they'd find abandoned infants there and they would be taken into homes and raised as slaves. And the, the, the third way was to be defeated in war and you were taken captive to be a slave for the rest of one's life. So uh, the followers of Jesus, as slaves, were told to obey the law and not to rebel against it. The aim was to change the relationship between the slave and the owner, but not to overthrow the system of slavery. Now we understand that uh, you know many criticize Christianity today for not abolishing slavery. When slavery was abolished, it was done mainly by Christians. But the goal of following Jesus was not to change one station in life, but to follow Jesus in whatever station you were in. So, for ancient followers of Jesus in Ephesus, and for current followers anywhere, understand this hinge verse handles every basic relationship you have. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's how it applies in our work world. You see, we have a passage here which is just five verses long and in those five verses, four of them are told how to be a good slave. That translates into how to be a good employee today. Four verses. The last verse is how to be a good boss. How to be a good slave owner. How to be a good manager. And they all sort of fit together. And I want you to know that these verses work no matter what economic system you're in. Hooray for capitalism. Nothing wrong with that. But we have found that wherever uh, Jesus followers go and wherever they practice and apply this verse, whether they be managers or employees, wherever, you know, wherever it is practiced, you find that there is an infiltration into any economic system that exists. So when this is practiced, in socialism, the church swells. They tried to stamp it out in communism being atheistic. They couldn't. The church was, continued to grow and increase. It is a Christian mutual submission that we're talking about in the workplace. And here is what it looks like. Again, this whole section begins in chapter 5, verse 21. And finally, when we get to slaves and masters, or employees and employers, it says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Just as you would obey Christ. The master and Christ are given a similar authority. Not the same, but a similar authority. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but like slaves of Christ, do the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord and not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether it is slave or free. And now, masters, again, just one verse. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What do you mean by the same way? Well, back up here with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Treat them in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism in him, meaning God. So understand that the labor laws have changed. Even though slavery would still exist, there were two things or three things that would have to change in terms of who you are and who you work for. So the labor laws for all Christ followers begins with this. You need to change your boss. That doesn't mean you get rid of your heaven, your earthly boss. It means that you work for Jesus even though you continue to be paid by men. Uh, That means that, uh, you know, it's instructing us that the high honor that we pay towards Jesus is a similar honor that we pay to our boss. We work for our boss understanding, not necessarily calling him Lord or confessing our sins to our boss or we don't worship our boss, but we work For our master or our employer as we would work for Jesus, not just because they're looking at us and evaluating us, but out of thanksgiving, we are working well. So, you know, this includes not just what we say to our boss that we speak respectfully, but it also talks about what we say about our boss to other employees. There's to be a consistency of living for Jesus. And, and that is the standard of our work life. The second thing is we have to change our performance. That doesn't mean we perform better, but notice what it says here. Doing the will of God from your heart. Hey, I've had jobs where I've been overseen. And they tell me exactly what to do. And in those jobs, I would do exactly what I thought they told me. And sometimes they would come back and they say, you did it wrong. And I go... I did it wrong because I had poor instructions. It's your fault. Or I did it wrong because it was supposed to be a team effort, and the team never showed up. I was all alone. I did it wrong because uh, there was to be one other person that was overseeing me in between you and him, and that person. that person got it wrong. What is that talking about? That's talking about no matter, you know, what goes wrong at your work, uh, when we're told to change our performance, that in the world we work in, it's usually what really counts is that we explain ourselves to make sure that everyone understands it's not my fault. And I was good at that. I am good at that. And, uh, you know, I've, I've learned a whole language, a whole way of saying, well, it almost worked, but so-and-so. Look, nobody expects your work to be perfect. But when it says here, you are, are performing for an audience of one as you work, you do it for the will of God and you do it from your heart. It's a thanksgiving motivation. And it's more than making a living. And it's more than making a name for yourself. You do it to honor God. Third thing we'll change is our compensation plan. Because it says here in Ephesians 5 verse 8, You know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he or she does. So there's a reward coming from God and that is to motivate us. Now I realize a reward from God that's off in the future doesn't necessarily make as much difference to us who have bills to pay and we want a reward that's shown in our paychecks. But I want to talk about a reward that is promised by God in that that great parable that Jesus tells. You see, he offers those who handle their work well both a verbal reward and a promotion. The verbal reward is this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've done good in a few things. Now you're going to do good in many things. Well done, good and faithful servant. Those six words mean a lot. I hope they mean a lot to you. Then the other thing is they get a promotion so there's even more work for them to do. It never says that they will be getting more money. So of the five verses here, we understand that four of the five are for the employees. But the final one is for the employers. And it says in the same way. Now, I want you to understand, as as people of the world looked at followers of Christ, it was a scandal. It was a scandal because, in a way, it was upsetting the entire economic system of the day. What it was saying is more important than who's in authority, who is one over the other. What is really important is not who's over the other, but but... What we're to focus on is is how we honor our brother who also was in the faith. Or our sister who was also in the faith. Yes, it, it may come down to an authority role where some decisions are made. But what it is getting at here is we are all image bearers of God. And though there are masters in the world, there are brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. In the family of God. So I want you to know, as as, uh, as those from, from the trades were looking at Christians who had come into their trade, they said, there's something very dangerous about what you're doing. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm for this. Uh, th- th- this could upset, you know, pretty soon your slaves will be demanding money. Pretty soon your slaves w- will have a sit-in strike or or do something like that. Following Jesus in that day and following Jesus now is subversive to the status quo. So, masters, they were also told to treat each slave with a sincerity of heart and understand that since you have decided to follow Jesus, that as you follow Jesus, your work will never be the same. Your work world will be turned, you might say, right side up, outside in. The idea here is that it, you know the way that God intended work to be is going to be displayed in his family. And God's family comes before any economic system. God's family comes before any economic system. So what does it look like when our work world is turned right side up? We understand that the power and the purpose, especially given to those who are in authority... The power and the position that they have have a different purpose now. So, if slaves are employees and masters are managers or bosses or owners now, then Jesus is telling them that the lure of profit takes a back seat and instead there is something else. A person is there who is also sharing the same image of God as you. The position society may not be the same. But the purpose for living is. So, if you're concerned mainly about productivity or profit, you look at your staff and your staff's welfare. That does not mean you give special privileges, but you are concerned. Uh, Jesus faced this with his own disciples. Uh, He's... Gathered with them, there. Uh, you know, he's left them for a while. They have a conversation that he comes back in on, and he says, uh, "Tell me what were you talking about." And they, they're a little embarrassed. But in Mark chapter ten, uh, what happened is is they're, they're they're having a discussion as the twelve as to what cabinet positions they will each have when Jesus comes to rule in in, in Israel. You know, what role will you get? Who will sit at his right? Who will sit at his left? Aren't you glad that doesn't happen now in politics? We don't discuss that ever at all. Um, And so it was a very natural discussion going on. I would expect this. I would expect this. But then Jesus comes back in. And as he comes back in, he just changes everything like he has every time he shows up. They were expecting a cabinet position because Jesus would kick out Rome and he'd take over the roles of Herod and Pilate. They are looking for power and position. And they think that by aligning with Jesus, this is how it comes. That Jesus would change the outcome of their lives. And then Jesus very simply informs them, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's not the position that he would take. It's the servanthood that he would show. Do you realize that in our, um, you know, in our culture today, we are obsessed with leadership, and leadership's not a bad thing. I have a bookcase because I'm concerned about my leadership, and I have a bookcase with a shelf about you know, that wide with titles on leadership. It goes way back to the 1970s. That's when I started buying books. It's when I learned to read, anyway. Um, LAUGHTER so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all of those and I say, okay, isn't that wonderful? Now, let's look at leadership or let's look at the life position that, that Jesus said he would have. And I go and I look for myself on servanthood. Nobody writes on servanthood. There's no books on servanthood. Well, that's because it comes so natural that nobody needs a book on servanthood. <laughs> Absolutely not. The power and position that we would gain, Jesus says, for him, was because he would become a servant. Leadership we call inf- and you know, how to influence others to do what we want them to do. Maybe not what they want them to do, but maybe because we influence them, now they want to do it. Okay? And Jesus has both the power and the possession, but he is obsessed with servanthood. That's turning the world and the work world upside down. Now, some of you are looking at me and say, you don't work where I work. I know that. I know that. In fact, some of you know me well enough saying, you haven't worked so long in the secular world, Jim. You have no idea what it's like. You'd be right. You'd be right. But may I also say maybe you have been away from a work position where Jesus is Lord where you need to be reintroduced. Not that you would work in a church, but wherever you are, that you could bring the aroma of Christ, the style of Christ, the authority of Christ, the the servanthood of Christ right there. So here's the other thing where things are turned upside down. And here's the challenge to you. That sometimes, in fact, often, obedience to God is perfected when we do it because we don't want to. We don't want to. Jesus is caught praying in Gethsemane. We're told in one of the Gospels that he prays the same prayer. He goes away and he prays, Abba, Father, if it all be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Not once, not twice, but maybe several times. That he was agonizing over what he was about to face. This was a decisive moment in the life of Jesus. He was asking for it. Can I get a get out of jail free card? Can I, you know, Lord, is it possible that I don't have to die? Is it possible I won't be crucified? Is it possible I won't be separated from you and taking on the sins of the world? Is it possible for me to be the savior of the world some other way? And the answer is no. No. So what will you do? And it's not what I will, but what you will. There's four basic relationships that we've been talking about here. And you can go back and look at them and and, and go online and hear them. But they all are on this hence verse. First of all, our relationships in the church. Hey, we spend maybe five hours with people in the church. We can get through that. You can be as eccentric as possible and I can bear with you. Or maybe you can bear with me. We can deal with that. But it's also the marriage. It's the parenting relationship. It's the community relationships. And it's the home. Where we're told be involved in mutual submission to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. Many of you know that um, um, I finished about two months ago my radiation therapy for my oral cancer, and um, uh, there's something that I went through that maybe can help explain this. Um, this looks like a very expensive bicycle helmet, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's, it's the mask I had to wear for each treatment 30 times. So uh, I, every morning I went in for six weeks, Monday to Friday, and... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, this was formed, first of all, they, they put it in warm water, and it got very soft, and they put it over my face. So this is what my face looked like, okay, underneath. And, um, and they would, the idea was to put it on like this, and then, which I could do, and lay me on a table, and then the radiation would go over me. But in between this coming on and the radiation going over me, was nine snaps, each of these snaps going down into the table so Jim DeMoeller could not move. I didn't like it, especially the first time. The unfortunate thing is I couldn't say a word, you know, with that mask on. But when it was over, I literally asked, is there any other way because my face and my ...was smashed into the table so that the mask and Jim's face and the table were all one. And I said, is there any way that we can find... Yes, there is. You don't have to wear the mask. And the chances of the radiation therapy being successful go way down. Oh, like what? You know, give me the odds. Well... This is designed to keep you in the right place so that the, so that the radiation beam always hits the same place and is effective. So if you don't use this, we'll tape your head and put it on there, you know, and we'll just do the best we can. But if you don't do this, your chances of recurring cancer are about 40%. I'm no mathematician, but I don't like that. So I say, well, how about if I wear the mask? Um... Probably less than 10%. In fact, the doctor said five. When you hear about mutual submission, let's be honest, and especially men, those of you who go to work on a consistent basis. When you hear the word mutual submission, you say, it hurts my freedom. It's too restrictive. It emasculates me. Why, if I'm so gifted, do I have to come under some idiots who don't quite know, who really do not understand what it's like? You know, we, we hear all these things. It makes me too servile. It's too demeaning. And that's what mutual submission is like. And I would like you to consider, just in this last moment or two, for you to consider what is it you really want out of life? Our culture says what you want out of life is success. And success is always measured with stature and wealth. Yet Jesus had neither, but he accomplished everything that his heavenly father sent him to earth to do. He says he submitted to his father. He even submitted to his enemies. And through it, he made it possible to save the entire world. And in your basic human relationships of life, in your home, your church, your work, your community, have you yet changed the metrics of your life and what you are aiming for in life because you follow Jesus? Every relationship applied to that you have in the Lord, not because the other person's a Christian, but because you are a Christian, uses this phrase, mutual submission. And Jesus did it to the Father. And God the Father says, here's the new metric. Being an example to leave to the next generation is far more important than leaving a fortune to the next generation. He calls being like Jesus the ultimate goal of your life, shown in mutual submission. And he's promised that he will bless those who do it. Does it work for you? This does not mean that you're a doormat. It does not mean you're servile. But we are living in a world that says, you know, I'm not sure I want to follow Jesus because it really cramps my freedom. I don't have the independence I want. Does it work for you? Let's pray. Almighty God, I predict that some of us right now have stories where maybe they did this, attempted it, and it was thrown back at them. Demotions. Pay cuts. Being fired. I predict that some of us have said, okay, I'm, I, I'm going to be a manager and I'm going to be mutually submissive and treat this person as a fellow image bearer. And that person backstabbed and took advantage of it. abused my love. Lord, we realize that when we're dealing with people, it does not always work out perfectly. But we also realize that this is that to which you have called us. Not just now, but forever. We love kids. And we thank you right now, Father, as that little girl submits to her mother. So also I think we just had even a better picture than a mask of how hard it can be spirit working in us, where this mutual submission applies again and again and again. And we ask this in Jesus' great and powerful name and God's people said. Amen.